I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 105 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is Dennis Dyken, who drummed for the power pop band The Smithereens and on One Faithful Night, a makeshift version of The Kinks. Dyken, a New Jersey native who still lives in the state, met guitarist Jim Babcheck in high school, and they bonded over their love of British invasion music. Dyken's childhood friend, Mike Maceros, eventually joined on bass, and as they moved to become a professional band, they sought out someone who could write songs, sing, and play rhythm guitar. Pat Denizio fit the bill, and the smithereens were born. They released two EPs, Girls About Town in 1980 and the more widely heard Beauty and Sadness in 1983. The then-independent Enigma Records released the Smithereens' 1986 debut, Especially For You, which cemented the band's potent combination of crunchy guitars, aggressive rhythm section, undeniable hooks, and Denisio's distinct vocals. had a preference for which song should be the lead single, but when a teenage vigilante movie featured the brooding Blood and Roses, that became many people's introduction to the smithereens. Dyken takes us through the creative work on Especially For You and its follow-up, Green Thoughts, which features Only a Memory and House We Used to Live In. Both albums were produced by Don Dixon, but for the third album, their label, Capitol Records, steered them toward producer Ed Stasium, who had worked with the Ramones. The muscular result, Eleven, became the Smithereens' most popular album, spawning the singles A Girl Like You, Blues Before and After, and Yesterday's Girl. But there was something about Stasium's approach that didn't thrill Dyken. He explains. Stasium also produced Blow Up from 1991, which includes the radio-friendly Top of the Pops and Too Much Passion. But that album, which came out in the wake of Nirvana's Nevermind and Grunge, fell short of expectations. The Smithereens bounced among different labels after that, still producing strong work, but never reaching its former commercial heights. Dyken kept working beyond the Smithereens. He played with Ronnie Spector for many years and with former Carol Pop guest Scott McCoy on some projects. And he drummed with former Carol Pop guest Dave Davies of The Kinks, including on one very special night. Dennis Dyken with Bell Sound released an album in 2009, Late Music. He is the chief singer and songwriter on melodic, harmony-filled songs that could have been recorded by the Beach Boys in the early 70s. Petanizio died in 2017 at the age of 62. The Smithereens have regrouped to perform with old friend and former Carol Pop guest Marshall Crenshaw and Robin Williams of the Gin Blossoms as lead vocalist. Dyken has talked about recording new Smithereens material. Is that happening? Dennis Dyken sees himself as a working musician first and foremost, and his passion for the music rings as loudly as any of his drum fills. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Dennis Dyken. I saw that you were at this, uh, the Lenny K's Nuggets Golden Jubilee Band in Hoboken Arts and Music Festival. It was fun. That looked good. It was fun. It was, it was actually all these, uh, all these Carol Pop people were there. I had Lenny K on. I had uh, two of the Feelies on. So all my favorite ah. people. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah. And 
we did a, a bigger show, uh, a Nuggets show in July in New York with Lenny at the City Winery. We did two nights, and we had more uh, more uh, vocalists there, uh, the guest star vocalists like Patti Smith and um, Juliana Hatfield, Richard Lloyd, so many. Yesterday, we had some great singers, too, um, and a slightly different band. Fred Smith was on bass, Fred Smith from television. Right, nice. And uh, James Mastro from the Bongos, and um, Dave Amos on keyboards. Um, and uh, it, it was just so much fun. Uh, and, of course, there was a, a, a West Coast show uh, with a whole different band. I wasn't part of that. Uh, yeah, I flew, out for, I flew out for that one, yeah. Did you? I had just interviewed Lenny because that Nuggets box set had come out. I was a big fan of Nuggets. And a lot of the people on that show were people I'd talked to already, uh, like Scott McCoy and uh, Kathy Valentine and Peter Case and Carrie Baker, the publicist, had was encouraging me to go. Um, and then the other half were people I wanted to talk to because what the hell, right? So I ended yeah. up talking to later Johnny Eccles from love and peter zaremba and um that was and it's just totally my my thing i mean like between the you know, mu musicians i love playing songs that i love so it was a fun match yeah the wild honey shows are just stellar otherworldly in a way they're just that good um i was fortunate enough to participate in the kinks one uh a couple of years ago and then um the love and spoonful oh nice Wild Honey show, which was which featured three of the surviving members of the Spoonful, and I got to play drums on a few songs, and I sang a song, a tune called Butchie's Tune. The extent that they go to, the care that they take for the orchestrations and the the attention to detail is just staggering, and that you just feel like you're uh, riding this beautiful wave, you're awash in this wave of love and talent when you're playing with the Wild Honey organization. And it's for a good cause, too. So it's it's really uh, to be lauded. You actually toured with Dave Davies, another, yes, form, I did. another I did Carol Pop guest, by the way. But you were on stage when Ray came out and they played You Really Got Me Together, right? Yeah, that was December of 2015. Hard to believe it was that long ago. <laughs> yeah. But uh, in London... And um, there was some rumblings that Ray might join us on stage that night. And we really didn't know if he was going to appear until he did appear. And uh, it was really exciting. I don't think, from what I'm told, they hadn't played together in 19 years at that point. So it was a, a real milestone. And my wife was in the audience and she snapped pictures right away and posted it right away. And then the internet ignited. <laughs> With uh, with the uh, yeah, everybody was really joyful to see that you know. So it, uh, I, I was very happy to be there. No, you know, I mean, I've been following the Kinks since 1964. Uh, well, you really got me when it came out, and uh, been a fan. And so all the guys in the Smithereens were fans, you know, uh, and still are. And so it uh, had a lot of special meaning for me. Did you have sort of an out of body experience? Like, wait a minute, I'm the drummer in the Kinks right now, basically. Yeah, it's not the first time. You know, 1991, I believe, or 92, I think it was 91, the Smithereens were on tour for our blow-up album at the time. And we were booked to play a show at Boston Garden, the hockey, the hockey arena. It was a multi-artist benefit show. 
uh, I forget what the charity was, but it was sponsored by WBCN, the big station there. Right. And on the bill, amongst the other artists performing were Ray and Dave, but they, they were just playing quote unquote unplugged. All right. Uh, they were promoting the, what was that album called? The one with hatred on it. Um, anyway, uh, phobia was they, it? Phobia. Yeah. Yeah. Phobia. Okay. So they were, they were touring to promote that just the two of them playing without a band. And when we got wind of it, we said, Hey, well, you know, uh, <laughs> if they would like, we could certainly back them up. We'd love to do it. So we worked it out where we did back them up on one and a half songs. Um, they did their set and we, we orchestrated this uh, sound check. There was a whole set of backline already in place on stage. And there was a curtain there. This is again, Boston garden, a big hockey arena. And, um, the plan was that, uh, when they did Lola, which was going to be the last song of the set, when they got to the sing-along part where they engaged the audience and kind of stopped playing their instruments and they just, you know, encourage and wave the, the audience on to sing, the curtain rose, we're at our instruments, and we kick into the outro of Lola. Oh, nice. And then we, uh, and then we played You Really Got Me with them. And I, I remember as we ascended the stage that night, Jimmy said, well, I guess we're in the kinks tonight. Jimmy Babjack. Right. So, uh, so that, that was the first, uh, real out of body. I guess it was kind of an out of body situation, you know, but the thing is whenever you do have a, a good moment like that, where you sit in with your heroes or get to play or tour with your heroes, it's still a bona fide gig. And uh, as a musician, you're uh, just obligated to make sure you play it right. You know, it's, it's not that you, you lose sight of who you're playing with, but your focus turns to, all right, I got to make sure I remember, you know, this is new music for me to play. Not, not, I, not even though I mean, know the, the songs, but it's still right. new for me to play. So uh, I got to just make sure I don't screw up and it's, you know, it's a gig. So it, it's not that it's, it's less fun, but it, it just kind of brings you down to earth a little bit. You know? Was that where you met Dave? Like, did that lead to you getting the gig with him years later, or that, was that a totally separate thing? You know, that was probably one of the seeds, yeah. Uh, Jimmy, Mike, and I, Jimmy Badjack, Mike Mazaris, and myself from the Smithereens, we would, we would stalk the kinks back in the 70s. We used to, They were playing three nights in New York City. We'd go all three nights, and we'd go hang out at the hotel, and they'd actually join us for drinks sometimes, so... They don't. They didn't know us, and they didn't really remember us from back then. But um, yeah, I think that night, and then we were trying to get something going where the whole band was going to tour, backing up Dave in the late '90s, and for whatever reason, it fell through. So he was aware of the band, and he was aware of me. And then he, he had a, a girlfriend living in New Jersey in a neighborhood where, where a friend of mine lived, and somehow my name came up, and. Uh, Dave came to another Smithereen show in New Jersey. And so, yeah, we were reacquainted. So I guess it was a bunch of different things that contributed to that. Yeah. Did you uh, interact with Ray a lot at the time when you did that first show? No, not a whole lot. Like I said, we did a, um, we did a, a sound check rehearsal and then we chatted a little bit, which was cool. Uh, and the one thing that I remember the most at Soundcheck, I was pretty dressed down. I just had a flannel shirt and some, you know, ratty old jeans on. And before we left the Soundcheck to go back to the hotel and and get ready to come back to the show, he says, uh, "So uh, what will you be wearing on stage tonight?" <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so don't worry, Ray. We probably engaged more with him when we used to hang out at the Warwick Hotel in New York. They, they actually did make time to to chat with us and have beers with us. And uh, they always um, seem to be the everyman that their image kind of portrayed, you know? Um, yeah, they were big rock stars, but they were just guys who liked to hang out and have a drink and, and meet people and talk with you. It was pretty cool when you're not even 20 yet and you, you're oh, yeah. an aspiring musician and you get to hang out with people you really admired for all your life. It was really cool. So you, Mike, and Jim, were you guys were friends from like school age, like grammar school and then high school. At least you were playing together. And and then Pat joined you later and became sort of the, the final piece in that puzzle. Um, mm -hmm. Was was the dynamic like the three of you and Pat, or was it really the four of you, you know, once you were all together, were pretty on the same page on all this musical stuff and everything? Um we were on the same page with uh, it was really uh, like a switch went off when we met Pat. Uh, I know Mike since third grade, which is 1966 or thereabouts. And growing up with him, we, we were very close friends, but he wasn't really playing bass during those years. He, like a lot of kids, he studied accordion. So he had some really good uh, musical grounding. And Jimmy had, uh, also studied accordion with the same teacher i didn't meet jimmy till high school even though he was from carteret and went to school in carteret he was in a different school zone you know and uh but he knew mike when they were grammar school age because they attended the same church made their communion together and, and like that but uh when i graduated eighth grade my burning desire at that point in my life i was already playing drums i really wanted to be in a band you know and uh the kids in grammar school, I was good friends with all of them, but they weren't really on the same page musically as I was. Uh, my criteria was if I could find a guitarist who could play I Can't Explain by The Who, then that, uh, that was a good starting point, or maybe even better than a starting point. So when I graduated eighth grade, we didn't have junior high in Carteret, New Jersey. We just went straight to high school from eighth grade. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go to high school. And uh, there's going to be a lot of new kids that I've never met before and, and a bigger number of kids in the school than in grammar school. So I thought maybe my chances are better to find somebody to play with in high, once I enter high school. And so day one of freshman year, it's day one, period one, row one, seat one. There's a kid oh. and I'm in the second, I'm in the second row. And there's this kid that in the first seat and he's got kind of a beetleish haircut. No, that's Kid looks cool. And, and he opens up his loose leaf and he's got color pictures of the Who plastered in there from Hit Parader right. magazine. So I, I, maybe I should talk to this guy. And I did that day introduce myself. And we started playing together that week, you know? And um, so that was Jim. It, yeah, it was Jimmy. And, uh, but there weren't, there wasn't anybody else in high school that was into the same things musically that we were into. We were at that point, we were kind of disenchanted with the, the state of current state of music that was on the radio. Uh, top 40 anyway, and looking back, there were some marvelous records and there were records that we did like, but, uh, you know, we were going back and listening to Eddie Cochran and listening to 
a lot of the British invasion stuff that digging deeper beyond the top 40 hits that we grew up with. And we were really in our own little musical bubble. So it was still tough to find other musicians to play with. Um, so right around, right after we graduated uh, high school, Mike, uh, you know, Mike was hanging around with us the whole time. And we still didn't even have a, a third or fourth member. No, didn't have a, we weren't really lead singers. We were hoping to find uh, a, lead, uh, a lead singer, somebody who could front the band and hopefully write original material. So Mike was hanging around with us and said, well, you know, I, I might as well learn to play the bass. They, these guys need a bassist. So he did. He self-taught, right? And uh, in very short order, became a, world-class bassist. I mean, he got good really quick. Again, having grounding in accordion lessons really helped. Um, and so we scuffled around. We graduated in 75, and we were looking. You know, we couldn't find anybody that was into the move and the small faces and right. things like that. And, uh, the and move with so many musicians. Uh, we found a few people that hung out with us a little bit, lead singer types, but didn't really, uh, didn't last. So I started, even though we kept our thing going, I was playing with other bands, uh, hoping to find other people and situations. And uh, lo and behold, uh, we put an ad out seeking a lead singer in the late 70s, around 78 thereabouts. And um, at the same time, Pat Denizio had a, a cover band called The Lake, and they were looking for a drummer. And... I answered the ad. It was an intriguing ad because it said uh, cover band playing music by the Beatles, the jam, Buddy Holly, Elvis Costello, uh, Devo. <laughs> so, well, this is, this is a little different. Let me check this out. So I answered the ad. I auditioned and I joined this group and we rehearsed for about six months, but didn't really play out until after I quit. I, there was some, some tensions in the in the fold, and I said, you know what, this is this is fun, but it's also not fun. So I'm gonna I'm gonna beg off, and I said, okay, well we have this gig we booked. We play this one gig. I said, okay, I'll play the gig. And that was in uh, early 1979, and then I said goodbye. I stayed friends with those guys, including Pat, who uh, was starting to write songs, and he called me to play on some of his demos in early 1980, and I did. And it was just the two of us. He he played guitar, bass, and I played drums. And so it occurred to me, I said, well, you know, and he was coming from the same place we were. He was really into the classic pop rock and roll songwriting and, uh, and had the same uh, interests culturally and the same background and just dug up. We, we, we hit on a lot of the same marks. And so I said, ah, you know, I, these friends of mine, I think would be really good for this music of yours. <laughs> and I really like playing with them. Why don't I introduce you to them? And so Jimmy and Mike came in. It was really the right timing for both sides, for Pat and, and for us. And uh, that we played our first gig in March of 80. And that uh, period of 1980 through 80, late 85, we, we released two EPs and we, played around New Jersey and New York quite a bit, even got to go to Scandinavia um, based on the success of a, our EP Beauty and Sadness. A major recording deal was Elusive, 
even a minor recording deal, all the all the, the big labels and small labels were turning us down. And it was kind of frustrating. Finally, Enigma Records got hold of a, a tape we sent, and that's how we uh, set out to record, especially for you. Actually, we had recorded five tracks that appeared on Especially For You uh, on a self-financed, self-produced session in April of 1985. Those tracks were uh, Alone at Midnight, Crazy Mixed Up Kid, Cigarette, Blood and Roses, and Behind the Wall of Sleep. And yeah. those comprised the demos we were sending out to try and get a deal on. They were getting, we were getting turned down with those songs. And of course, those became the, the cornerstone of Especially For You. Right. So when the three of you were playing before Pat joined, did you have a name? Like, were you a band band? Were you playing out or were you just? Um, no, we weren't playing out. We, the only time we, we were playing at like parties at Mike's apartment and that kind of thing. And we did a gig at the Carteret Park one time with this lead singer that we had for a little while. We were calling ourselves What Else. We were trying to think of a, a, a name that was somehow along the lines of The Who. Right, I was going to say, you get a double bill of the who and what else. <laughs> so uh, that was short-lived. But, and Pat was coming from a lot of different angles musically, too. He was also into fusion. He was a pretty good guitarist. And, and uh, you know, he had uh, his interests in music were pretty wide. He even studied drums with Tony Williams, the, the great jazz drummer. Huh. Uh, he didn't really play a lot of drums, but he... He, he really was multifaceted and, and is in had a lot of different uh, musical interests and passions. So as we all did. So it was really, it was fun, you know, and he had the same kind of sense of humor as we did, which is very important when, if you're going to spend a lot of time with a person, you know, to uh, be able to share that, that the levity as well as the serious work and, uh, he was deep into movies and um, a lot of the same uh, things that we grew up with, too. So really, the timing was really right on, on meeting Pat, you know. Were you guys writing songs before he joined? Yeah, not a whole lot, but we were we were writing some. Um, remember, we recorded a few of Jimmy's, a couple demos, and uh, including the song White Castle Blues, which Jimmy wrote with our friend Bob Banta, a high school friend of ours. We, I think he wrote that in the late seventies. Um, and we had demoed that, uh, and that ended up as a bonus track. You remember when, uh, when CDs were pretty new LPs would have usually 12 songs, but the CDs, they throw on bonus tracks, right? Sometimes uh, hidden early, early CDs. So that white castle blues was a, uh, it was a, a cut on a, bonus track on especially for you so when pat came in and started playing you his songs do you a do you remember the first one you heard or played together and also were you like oh this guy's really actually at this level that uh you know we could go somewhere with yeah um first song was six um there was a couple the ones we that he and i recorded were elaine which later uh we recorded for green thoughts uh, girls are like that, which we re-recorded for our first EP, Girls About Town. Uh, and I also, we also heard an earlier version of Girls About Town uh, that he demoed. 
And what was the third one? A song called Tell Me You Want Me, which never really, we never did anything with beyond that initial demo. Those were the three. Yeah, and they were melodic, really good hooks. Uh, the lyrics were pretty uh, intelligent. And yeah, it was, uh, we could tell that he definitely had a gift, for sure. Yeah, I don't have Girls About Town. I do have Beauty and Sadness. And then... I was introduced to you. I'll tell you this will this will date me as well. But I went to school in Philadelphia and I graduated in May of '86. And a friend and I, I were driving back to Chicago from Philadelphia, and we left at like noon. We did not leave early, so we would get in, and we did not stop in Cleveland or something on the way. We just drove through, and I remember. Getting getting onto the Dan Ryan, sort of getting within Chicago and being able to turn on WXRT, which for me was like, now I know I'm home. Because I can listen to my cool radio station. And going down the Dan Ryan at like two in the morning, and I heard this do 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 do. And then the the guitar and you, the drums kicked in on Blood and Roses. And I was mm-hmm. like, What is this song? This song is so cool. And I remember just like I've always associated that song with two in the morning on the empty Dan Ryan driving home from college because it was the first I heard it and it totally stuck with me. And I remember thinking that the vocalist was really interesting and distinct and, uh, you know, the the sound of it was really crunchy, which is what I liked. And mm-hmm. and so then when, especially for you, came out, um, I don't even know if it was out yet. It, was, it came out, I think, that summer. I picked that up immediately. So I was sort of, so I was on board for that and then later found Beauty and Sadness. But Anyway, that's my little reminiscence. That's a great setting you described for hearing Blood and Roses. That sounds like a just like a good moment. You know, everything was aligned. And you're right. I, I was not introduced it's, to it by a teen horror movie. I was introduced to it on the radio on a cool yeah. rock station at two in the morning. Yeah, XRT was a big supporter of the Smithereen. Big supporter of the Smithereen. And Chicago was always and still is a great city for us. Uh, we really love coming there, and, and we have great memories of playing there on our first tour. I was going to say, okay. I met my wife uh, writing a magazine story for the Tribune about XRT's 25th anniversary because she was on the air there. And for that story, okay. I went back and looked it up, and and one of the people I quote was Pat Denizio saying that Norm Weiner, the program director, was one of the architects of our success. Um, so so he was so he was in that piece that brought you know. Brought me and my wife together. So you guys are important. I, I love Chicago for a lot of different reasons. And there's certainly the history, uh, the recording history in Chicago looms large. And, you know, the uh, DJ is one of our favorite labels, DJ Records. Oh, sure. Out of Chicago. And, uh, but what I was going to say, you're right that um, Bud Roses was singled out kind of as a fluke. We never intended it to be a single. We thought that the best pop confection on the album was um, Strangers When We Meet. So, But what happened when we got signed to Enigma at that time, they were um, doing a lot of the soundtracks for um, canon films, uh, a company that did the Death Wish series. The album, especially if you didn't come out till right around July 4th of 86, but it was the spring of 86 that... Um, they were doing a soundtrack for a movie called Dangerously Close, a right. teenage vigilante movie. There were advanced cassettes of the album pre-release, and one of them was landed in the, the car of one of the attorneys, I think, or one of the owners of Canon Films. Anyway, 
One day, the wife of this executive gets in the car, finds the cassette, pops it in, and um, hears Blood and Roses, and she tells her husband, I think this song would be really fitting for this teenage vigilante movie you're working on. That's how that song got uh, the attention. So Enigma flew us out to Los Angeles, first time in L.A. as a band in spring of 86, to do a video for Blood and Roses. And uh, they wanted us to dress up on the, in these horrible costumes with black hoods and to be to tie into the look of the movie. And, and, and even though we had, we didn't have any kind of cred at the time or any you know, any any real um, muscle, we said, we're not doing that. <laughs> and so we shot a performance video and they uh, interspersed some scenes from Dangerously Close in, into the this video. And MTV at the time really got into this song and they were playing the video and the film died a pretty quick death. So they recut the video and it was, it just became a smithereens performance and it just took off. It, it MTV got, I guess a lot of good, uh, uh feedback. And, uh, then Enigma released the promotional 12 inch of the song to rock radio and college radio. And it just, uh, it got embraced by all those uh, those people, and it, it just started the ball rolling. And then finally, the album came out, and then that tour lasted about fifteen or sixteen months, for especially for you. Very exciting time. When you guys recorded it, you didn't think "Blood and Roses" was was a standout song. We liked it, but we thought it was an album track. We didn't yeah. think it was a single. Boy, were we wrong. <laughs> well, and they didn't really go back. I mean, Strangers When We Meet was, I mean, did they put that out as like the fourth single or something? Because Behind the Wall of Sleep came after that. I think uh, In a Lonely Place came out. So it wasn't yeah. like, it wasn't like they, they went back to your choice right after, right after that. No, it actually, we did shoot a video for it, but we didn't like it. So we never released a video. And I, Strangers was never really a single, as it turned out. To be, I think it, yeah, it was Blood and Roses, then Behind the Wall of Sleep, then In a Lonely Place, and I think um, I think they were starting to promote Time and Time Again, but then the steam had kind of run out of that that whole first uh, tour, so they didn't really push that. But no, Strangers ended up not being uh, a single for us. So it just goes to show you never know. So, and Don Dixon produced it. He had worked on Murmur and Reckoning for R.E.M. Did he do anything in particular with you guys? Like, did you shape the sound together or was he pretty much just capturing what you guys already sounded like? Yeah, I think uh, once we got started recording, mind you, we had those five songs done already that I mentioned before. So you used those he actual did. recordings? That the, those yeah, five? those tracks. Don did uh have us sweeten them a bit with some overdubs and maybe a, a different solo here or there uh and he remixed them but it was the same essence the same essential tracks same basic tracks okay uh, yeah the same basics and i think the same vocals you know uh so once we started recording the remaining songs for the album and you know we were already together for close to six years so we had pretty pretty much gelled as a band and we'd been playing even longer, like I said, with back in the seventies. So he recognized that, uh, 
let let the let the kids do what they do, you know. And he, he certainly had some good suggestions in the studio and uh, uh, helped us with the arrangements. And yeah, no no doubt about it, he had definite ideas and produced it. But all of our experiences with Don were pretty much him letting us do what we do naturally and help shape the end product as a producer will do. But uh, very organic. Very, and that's what I love about working with Don. He's a very musical spirit, and uh, he just he just gets it, and he he doesn't uh, strong arm you to do anything that you probably don't want to do. And I remember the first moment I met him because we didn't really know about him. Uh, I guess we knew his name a little bit, but Enigma suggested him, and the first, we didn't even do any pre-production rehearsal with him. We, it was the day after Christmas of 85. We went to the record plant in New York. That's where, even before we did our first album, we had been working at the legendary record plant, uh, where so many fabulous records have been made. And um, one of the first things I said to him, back then, drum sounds were kind of mushy. And I said, please don't make my snare sound like a dead fish. <laughs> and uh, And... Then we got along fine after that. So, yeah, it was always great to work with Tom. So, and and you reteamed with him for Green Thoughts, the second album. At at that point, did you have like an, you know another album's worth of material ready to go, or was there sort of that the classic sort of second album scramble to uh, oh we had oh, we had our whole career to write the first one, and now we got to get that second one together. Yeah, there were one or two, there was a few songs like I mentioned. Elaine had been hanging around for a few years and uh some songs were born out of sound check riffing only a memory for example and um i do remember that we got off the road i think it was early september of 87 like the first tour started in july of 86 and ended september of 87 it was a, a long haul it was it was great but you see, in, in the interim, we were able to get onto Capitol Records. We left Enigma, and by the time we did Green Thoughts, we were with Capitol, and they wanted a, another album from us really quick. So we got off the road in September, and we were slated to go start recording Green Thoughts at the Capitol Tower in Hollywood early December. That doesn't leave a lot of time, but like I said, there were germs of songs, and some songs were already done. And I remember we just went right to work. We got off the road, and in a couple of days, we were in the rehearsal studio working on new material. Um, you know, sometimes, yeah, I know what you mean about the sophomore slump, and fortunately, that didn't affect us. We, I think we had waited so long to get signed and kicked around so long. We were just willing everything to happen at that point and just kind of... Uh, Moving forward, based on the the energy we had created already, we just this is what we wanted to do, you know, since we were kids. So uh, we made it happen. And and with that one, did you know that only a memory, like that's the single for that one, at least the first one. If I remember correctly, I think we, we were fond of that one and uh, "Drown in My Own Tears," which also did become a single. Right. But Memory and House were the two say, from that album. That, yeah, I was going to say that, House that we used to live in. Yeah, House we used to live in. Those are the ones that uh, did real well for us. It's funny to think about 
how the music biz was at that time with uh, when there still was a music business uh, with MTV was so important, you know, and you had to make the right video and uh, hope that they liked it. And they really did. They got up behind us and we didn't fit the part in a way. We didn't, I often joke, I say, okay, so we got signed to Enigma after being rejected by every major and every independent label out there. And I think one of the reasons was because we didn't include a photo in the press kit. Because <laughs> uh, we, you know, back then it was hair bands and electronic music and uh, a lot of fashion. And we just, we were just us. We never tried to be anything we weren't. And we, I think we provided a breath of fresh air to listeners. We were tired of all the, the posers, so to speak, and, and all the electronic music. We came along with guitars, bass, and drums at the right time. This is the house we used to live in. This is the place I used to know. After we used to left my heart. After we used to live in Florida. Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery, has moved beyond beer with its new sparkling hop water, Super Zero. Launched in time for anyone observing Sober October, Super Zero delivers the citrusy hop flavor you'd expect from the makers of the best-selling anti-hero IPA. But it contains no alcohol, calories, carbohydrates, or sugars. If you're taking a break from beer, Super Zero is the super alternative. It's available in six packs at stores and on revbrew.com, even if you live outside Revolution's distribution footprint. And then Eleven came out just a year after Green Thoughts, uh, and that's and that one you had Ed Stasium working on. Was that was that a band decision or a label decision? Like, how did that all come to be? You know, I think um, the label and perhaps us to some degree were just wanting to try something different. We had admired Ed's work with the Ramones, you know, and a mutual friend put us together and we hit it off. He's from Jersey. <laughs> and um, again, we uh, had a lot of the same musical points of reference. And uh, yeah, I think we just wanted to see what we could do with a, di with a different producer. And so we did. So did it change the way you approached the recording, the songs? Like what was, what was different and not different? Well, at that point in time, records were being made... Uh, a little more methodically, I guess, in the industry. Uh, prior to that, we'd never used a click track, and Ed wanted to use that to uh, produce a certain feel, a uh, certain consistency, I guess. Um, so that was a very different thing. Uh, well, for you especially. A lot more. Sorry? I said especially for you, that would be a different thing as the drummer having to play with a click track. Oh, yeah. It's very different. But I, part of the reason he did it too is because he his method methodology was to do a lot of editing, you know, to take the best part from one take and put it into another take, which is the way a lot of Beatles records and a lot of records in, in the '60s were made, uh, editing editing parts from different takes of songs. So, but to do that, you had to have a very strict, consistent tempo uh, on the track. So. Not my favorite way of making a record, but uh, we got good results and we certainly had success with Eleven. I 
I don't know what the statistics are, if that was our best-selling record. or I think that's the album that most, that and especially for you, are the two albums that most people gravitate towards or mention. They go for Green Thoughts as well. But um, anyway, it was successful. It worked. People are still digging it, so I guess we did something right with it. Do you go back and listen to it? Like, I could hear where it was a little bit more mechanized than I would like. Yes. <laughs> it felt a little bit less like me in the drumming, I thought, you know? Um, but hey, it worked. We played Saturday Night Live during that, you know, that tour. Right. Or, or as the, you know, if you mention Saturday Night Live to younger generation now, they don't know what you have to say, SNL. I don't know if you know about that. They don't. They don't. They don't only know the abbreviation. So we played SNL. Um, we played "Girl Like You" and "Blues Before and After." That was very exciting, and um, yeah, I mean, people love that album. So I can't argue with it. Was was the dynamic among among the band pretty much the same while you were on this, you know, ride and getting more popular and you know playing SNL or? You know, did 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 ego start getting out of joint at some point, or were you a pretty cohesive group? Yeah, you know, to some degree, but and we're from a working class background. Uh, we, three of us grew up in Carteret, real blue collar town, uh, and Pat was a, a garbage man before he joined the band. You know, his father had a garbage uh, company, Nick Benizio and Son. So we were coming from a real. Um, so he was the son. He was the son, yeah. Well, actually, it was Denizio and I think his grandfather started the business. I think it was Denizio and Sons, plural. So the dad I was the original son. Could be. Could okay. be. So, you know, we're, we're coming from uh, a real uh, grounded kind of rooted background. So, yeah, there were, there were some egos, I guess you would say, amongst us. But... Uh, we made it through, and uh, the thing about those days when we were touring, I think what kept us focused and what kept us uh, from going too crazy, you know, people ask, how was it, you know, being a, a successful rock and roll band? And my answer is, it was great, but it was a lot of work. You know, we would hit, sometimes, we'd hit a city and we'd sometimes visit three or four radio stations during the day and then go back to our hotel and do phoners for print interviews or do an in-store appearance. So in addition to playing the shows and traveling uh, so much and being away from home, we were always occupied, you know? Crazy to think how much activity there was. On one tour, or maybe two tours, we had two buses so the crew could travel separately, set up at the venue and do sound checks for us while we were doing all this promotional work, it was it was really a intensely busy time. Was there a point where all of you could, you know, buy new cars and new houses and feel like this, you know, elevation in your your lifestyle, or you know, did it not work that way? Um, my wife and I never bought a new car until 2017. Uh, we have a house, which I got back in the 80s, but. Uh, we never had bought a new car until six years ago, whatever that was. I don't know. I guess I'm dumb, but I didn't realize that if you have good credit, you can walk into a car dealership at that time with no money down and walk away with a new car. And, you know, it had payments, but I thought you have to, you know, 
I was oh, 30 grand for a car. Are you kidding me? I would always drive, you know, old clunkers or whatever. And when we found out it was that easy, well, okay. <laughs> but it, it wasn't like you all suddenly got rich and, uh, you know, everyone was staying at the Ritz or something like that. Didn't get rich. Like you still, you still felt like a, essentially a blue collar rock band, even as you were becoming more successful and known and all of that. Yeah. We, I mean, it's crazy to think we were really successful. You know, we, we toured the world and we had great audiences and did great shows and, and our fans were really dedicated and still are. It'll be 44 years we're together in this coming March. And we still have some of the same fans, and we have uh, new fans, new generation of fans. You know, I always thought thought of myself as a working musician. You know, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be in a band, fortunately, with my good friends. And that's something that's so important for younger aspiring musicians to keep in mind. If you really want to have a career in music, make sure that you find people that you like playing with, but also that you like spending time with, because there's going to be a lot of downtime right? <laughs> traveling and, uh, in hotels and restaurants and airplanes and airports. So you gotta, you gotta find people you like to, to be with. And it really is fortunate for all of us that we, we were able to parlay a childhood passion into actually occur having a career and even to this day i still think I, I think of myself more than anything as a working musician i like to play i play with a, in a lot of different musical situations not we still the smithereens are still quite busy but like i did the nuggets thing yesterday and i, I played with ronnie specter for 10 years when i didn't have any smithereens conflicts with dates but i like play with different people and do different musical situations. I'm doing a show at Carnegie Hall in November with Richard Barone from the Bongos. It's a celebration of uh, like Greenwich Village uh, and folk music from the 60s. And there's, there's going to be a lot of cool artists on the bill, like uh, Jose Feliciano and um, Callan Hester. And yeah, I don't have the list in front of me, I forget, but... Um, you know, we're going to do Tim Harden songs and uh, Dylan songs. It's it's going to be an exciting thing. I like I, I really like a lot of different kind of music, and I love to get the opportunity to play with different musicians and and uh, and different kind of music. And you know, even if it's playing a local bar with friends, if I like the, the players and I like the music, and it's not too far a drive, I'll, I'll do it. You know, and, and I have a couple different musical combos, uh, like trios that. Uh, we just play things that we like to do. So anyway, it's a long yeah. answer to your question. I yeah. Think. I'm going to ask you about that late music record and playing with them as well, but I'm going to bring us back to blow up. So as the second album you made with Ed Stasium, were you, were you happy with that one? And, and how did that experience go? Blow up was, we cut that in 91 and started it in late winter, early spring of 91. And at that point uh, on the heels of the success of 11 Capitol records, had real high hopes for the, the next album. So <laughs> it's insane to think of what the budgets were like back then. I can't even remember what the actual budget was, but it was in six figures, you know? So I guess the, the thinking was the more you spend, the better the record's going to be. I think it's a good record, but I, I, it just took a long time to make. 
because we could, because they they allowed us to with the budget. You know, I mean, we that whole album. I forget how maybe it took two or three months to do. It didn't need to be. I even we cut that in L.A. at A and M and a few other studios. And after the tracks were done, while they were working on guitars and some some of the vocals. I came home back to Jersey for two weeks and then went back again <laughs> to finish up my parts. You know, I think blow up is a pretty cool album. There's a lot of different styles and feels on there. Strings. And we, we had David Campbell do the arrangements. He was, uh, he had worked for Motown and he, he is the father of, of Beck. So anyway, yeah, there, there was a lot of dough being tossed around and a lot of high hopes, but the album came out, uh, as grunge was taken off and it, the focus became a little shifted, and it didn't really didn't take off like it, like the uh, label I hoped it would. You know, right, Capitol I was hoping it would. So, um, yeah, we still toured and toured pretty heavy, and had some good success with it. But then there was a change of regime at Capitol after that, and we were dropped. You know? but yeah, that's the yeah. one where he Pat did a co-write with Diane Warren and another one with Julian Lennon. Like, That's was, right, that, yeah. was that stuff that the label was asking him to do also? Like, hey, we have this hit maker, Diane Warren. She had a big hit with Aerosmith. You should write something with her. Yeah, I think the label pushed for that uh, at the time. That seemed to be a trend almost, really, you know? Rock bands having, writing songs with Diane Warren. Yeah, it, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you forced that on him. Why did you make him write with Diane Warren? Um, and with Ju with Julian, Pat had become friendly with Julian Lennon, and uh, I think it was Julian's idea. I think he said he asked Pat one day, "Do you fancy writing some songs together?" They might have written some others. I don't remember, but uh, you know, I think Pat had a, had a, a fantasy fulfilled when he saw the credits: P. Denizio, J. Lennon. There you go. <laughs> when. Pat was coming in with songs for these albums. So this is your fourth album. Was it always the same, the way you, you worked out the songs? Like, would he bring it in and you guys would arrange it? Um, and did that change over time? Did he bring them in in different ways? Or was it always pretty much the same thing? Did you guys say, hey, I don't like this batch as much as the last batch? Or was it always like, okay, cool, let's just move forward? It's pretty. It was pretty much always the same. He had ideas. We knocked our heads together and we shaped them all together. You know, we're a real band. We're four individuals who really have unique voices on our instruments and have strong ideas about the way a song should take shape. And uh, it was always very collaborative from day one, really. Date with the Smithereens, you were originally working with Butch Vig, who had produced a lot of that aforementioned uh, grunge. I mean, he'd done Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins. Did you guys have sessions with Butch Vig, or what happened there? We did one session with him, and it was for, well, we were still on Capitol. Uh, we did a Christmas single with him, a version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We recorded it in Chicago, to be uh, for your information, um, at, at the Chicago Recording Company uh, while we were on the road. And at the time, he told us, and we've seen it referenced in print elsewhere, that uh, Kurt Cobain was really into, especially for you, and Eleven, and maybe our other albums too. But if you read his diaries, you see references to our records in there. And uh, Butch Vig told us they had our albums, I think Eleven in particular, in the studio for reference. 
when we were when they were making uh, uh, Nevermind. Yeah, we thought, well, it'd be cool to work with him, and the label was was all for it. And that, again, there was some regime change, and things just kind of went south, and then we were dropped, you know. And so it wasn't like you had a big falling out with Butch Vig. It was more of the no, labor stuff. I think it was something to do at Capitol. I really don't remember the inner workings of it, but I remember after things changed at the label, everything changed for us, literally. So you guys did that album, Date with the Smithereens, and you did, uh, was it God uh, Save the Smithereens? Um, mm -hmm. And then Meet the Smithereens was another eight years later. So things kind of slowed down. Was there sort of a feeling of, well, you know, we're still a band, but this is sort of wound down and we're going to do some other stuff in the meantime? We, we never stopped touring, you know. We were always playing. Uh, some years were better than others. Actually, when we did that Meet the Smithereens album, the, which was our reimagining of uh, Meet the Beatles, it really upped our ante. We got it reviewed in the New York Times, and uh, people took notice of it. It got airplane, a lot of attention, and we got a lot more gigs out of it for some reason. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, it was just an, a phase, you know. Uh, I just always remember we always played, you know. We were always getting gigs. That 2011 album came out, so again, you're playing up the 11 thing there. You got Don Dixon yeah. back, um, and that sounded that still sounded like Smithereens. Um, yeah. Still sounded like you guys. Was that still fun to make albums at that point? That was fun. I, I we had a really good time making that album. Uh, we cut the tracks at Mitch Easter's studio in North Carolina, the Fidelatorium album, uh, studio. Right. And, uh, yeah, there was a real immediacy to those tracks. I think the songs were good and we were playing good. And we just, we did a little bit of rehearsing and went in and, and just blew it up. And then we, we actually did a lot of the overdubs and the vocals. Uh, Dixon brought in a mobile unit and we, recorded a lot of that at Pat's house in Scotch Plains, you know, and then Dixon took it home and mixed it. Yeah. I, I think that was a good album. I think it holds up pretty well. Was there sort of a sense or a frustration at that point that the radio record business, whatever it was at that point, it just, the, you were making music that was still very catchy and that I would always consider commercial because anything that you hear the first time and you can sing along with it, I think it was commercial, but that wasn't considered commercial anymore for whatever reason. Did that, was that something that weighed on you guys or were you just like, look, this is what we do. We're the smithereens. Yeah, I think it kind of did. I think that Pat in particular was feeling uninspired for a while because of the changes in the trends of music and, and uh, where do we fit in and why bother kind of thing, you know, uh, for a little bit. But in the end, if you if this is what you do, you just do it because it's what you do, <laughs> you know, Uh so we just soldiered on and we still are. Two thousand nine we did the late music album with uh, Dennis Dyken with Bell Sound. Uh -huh. And that's you stepping forward and uh you're singing and you're writing and with these songs that you had sort of been accumulating over the years. And it felt to me like it's like sort of like a Beach Boy Sunflower era record. Like it's kind of in that 
period like really pretty harmonies and nice you know arrangements you know andy paley's on there and uh jason faulkner what was your thinking going into that and were you like i'm ready for my my close-up now i guess so i i had fragments of songs lying around since the 60s i you know it was what it was a thing where i never studied music i never studied i self-taught drummer and growing up i thought oh well if you're right if you're a songwriter, I guess you have to know how to play guitar or keyboards. That's how you do it, right? Um, however, I still have melodies in my head from when I was 10 years old. So I guess I was always coming up with ideas, but I never thought of myself as a quote-unquote songwriter. But it got to the point where, yeah, I just started uh, focusing on it. And I was working with... Uh, a guy called Pete DiBella, who I knew since the 70s, and he and I wrote a lot of those songs together. And really, a, a lot of the cuts on late music were just glorified demos. We just demoed song ideas, uh, but the vibe of the demo, probably we probably couldn't surpass it if we tried to do a formal recording of them, you know? What happened is Dave Amos, who I mentioned before, he also plays with a band called Raining Sound. Not sure if you're familiar with them. Great rock and roll band. Uh, he and I have done a lot of uh, production and musical things together. Uh, we used to play with Mary Weiss from the Shangri-Las. We toured with her. Uh, anyway, Dave really loved these songs, and uh, quite a few of them were in a state of uh, near completion. And he said, let's just focus on He had access to a great studio in L.A., called the bomb factory at the time no longer there and we just went to la and we just had run of the studio and we brought in a lot of friends like you mentioned andy paley who's a great talent and a good friend jason faulkner and uh, the late nikki wonder from brian wilson's band and some other members of brian's band like um Proby gregory and, and uh, a talented guy called dan markell who lives in la and we just finished it up and put it out because we had to do it. <laughs> I, I'm very proud of that album. It got really good reviews. You mentioned Carrie Baker before. He was the publicist on that. And um, it touched a lot of people. I was really heartened uh, to hear from what it meant to certain certain folks out there. And uh, I think it stands up pretty well. And I'm always working on new material. I just got to... <laughs> budget my time better and focus on finishing up a bunch of other ideas that I have. It's, uh, how is one it of those things? I mean, you've done, uh, you know, harmony vocals for the smithereens, but how is it yeah. being the front lead singer? How did you, you enjoy that? And did you have to work up the, the courage to do it? Um, no, uh, certain songs come easy. Certain songs don't come easy as a vocalist, uh, for me, but, uh, no, I, I really like to sing, you know, and if, if I could nail the lead vocals on a song, it's kind of no greater joy in a way uh, than to be able to deliver a song. Uh, I know Brian Wilson has been quoted. They said, what's your, your favorite thing to do? You know, he says, sing in front of a microphone in a studio. He, that, you know, that, and I get it. That's, there's just, it's such a, uh, even though you're sharing it with the world, it's such an intimate form of expression. Uh, and uh, to be able to convey the emotion of a song and uh, have it resonate with a listener is uh, its a wonderful thing. And then if you can do it in a live setting, 
where you get immediate feedback. It's just, uh, it's one of the greatest things an artist can do. You know, there's a, when you're performing live and you get that immediate give and take thing, it's just, you're in a real holy place for those moments, I think, you know? So uh, I do enjoy it. I enjoy it very much. Pat Tanizio died in 2017. Um, and I, my, my impression is that he had some health problems for a while, but that's still, mm -hmm. you know, still pretty shocking. You know, when I heard about it, certainly, first of all, did you always know that you, the other three of you were still going to play together and did you ever consider doing sort of a Phil Collins and stepping up and saying, okay, I'll just be the lead singer for a while. Or was it always like, yeah, let's get Marshall Crenshaw and, uh, Robin Wilson and whoever else we can get to sort of sub in. It never occurred to me to be a, a front man for the smithereens. I could see doing for other projects, but, you know, Jimmy and I sing lead on a couple songs in our show nowadays, but I, I, I don't consider myself Smithereens frontman material. Uh, but when Pat died, you know, it took a few beats to process it. it. Even though he had been in ill health, you know how it is when you lose somebody like that, uh, it's shocking, but not surprising. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, but it still jolts you. And that happened in late December of 17, mid-December. And so, yeah, for for a little while there, we're thinking, well, yeah, what, what are we going to do? What transpired is before Pat passed, we had already booked the show for January of 2018. It was scheduled to be at the Count Basie Theater in Red Bank. And it was in conjunction with little Stephen Van Zandt. He was presenting, uh, the theater was undergoing some new uh, renovations or they were doing some new kind of um, room there. Or, or, anyway, so we, we were thinking, well, we should probably uh, postpone this or cancel this date. And Stephen said, well, I'll tell you what, and this was a really good thing that he did. He he said, why don't we keep the date? It was in January. He said, let's uh, have the Smithereens perform, the surviving Smithereens perform, and we'll bring in a slew of guest vocalists, star vocalists, and we'll create a tribute night to Pat Denizio, which is exactly what we did. I think we had about a dozen different singers. B.B. Buell, um, uh, Lenny Kay. Uh, Peter Zaremba, the number of people, and also also our old friend Marshall Crenshaw, who we've known since the early 80s. We uh, opened a lot of shows for him through the years, and he even played keyboards on Especially For You under a, an alias, Jerome Jerome. Yeah, I just uh, saw that. I, I looked that up, and I saw that he he plays on uh, Strangers When We Meet. Yeah, and he also plays on, uh, he plays six-string bass on uh, White Castle Blues. Uh, so he was one of the invited guests, as was Robin Wilson. We never met. Well, technically, we did meet Robin Wilson. He was working at a record store in 1988 on our Green Thoughts tour. We appeared, uh, did an in-store appearance, and he was a huge fan of the Smithereens, unbeknownst to us. We met him. That was, I guess, before the Gin Blossoms had formed. But at the time, we heard he's in Long Island, and he was a big fan of ours. So we invited him to guest with us. And, uh, oh, yeah, Ted Leo was another vocalist that night as well. Anyway, uh, Marshall and 
Robin, both guys stood out that night as um, it just felt like they belonged with us, you know, that they could not mimic Pat or try to imitate him, but they just interpreted the music and got the spirit of the music. Uh, and like I said, Marshall always felt like a member of our extended family. And that night, Robin, he just it just worked. So it made us think, why don't we at least try moving forward with these fellows if they were into it? And they were. So we did. And it works. And our fans dig it. So uh, it, they really maintained the integrity of the, the essence of the Smithereens music. It really works. Again, we were never considering, oh, we got to get a guy that looks or sounds like Pat, but if somebody could get the feel of the music and and uh, and people would be cool with it. And that's what that's the way it happened. I saw something with you, I think it was like in March of this year, and you're talking about maybe recording new Smithereen songs sometime this year. Is that still maybe happening or is that something that's going to happen you know, at some other point? I think, yeah, we, we're definitely going to do it. Jimmy's got a bunch of songs. I'm working on some songs. It's just a matter of creating a deadline, and we, we keep pushing it. But I think in the first quarter of 24, we'll definitely be in the studio. Yeah. Would, and cool with both Robin that. and Marshall doing vocals. Okay. And, and probably Jimmy and I doing some singing, too. The essence of our sound, to me, I think boils down to when Jimmy and I play together. Like, we could be at a sound check, and Jimmy has a very unique way of voicing a chord. Uh, when he strums a chord and I just hit a, a flam on the snare, that's the sound of the smithereens, you know? And, of course, you've had Mike's wonderful bass playing, but essentially it, it goes back to that first week of freshman year in 1971, when we started playing together, it's just, uh, if you have those elements, you have, I think, the essence of the smithereen sound. And, and so uh, with Robin and with Marshall fronting the band, it's just, uh, it's a different animal, of course, than what it was when Pat was with us, but it's, it's still the smithereens. And we're so glad that our fans are accepting of that. And I always make a point of, acknowledging the fact that we we would be nowhere without our fans and uh, how grateful we are that you know, this childhood dream, this boyhood dream of being able to play music and have people dig it and we can make a living at it continues. You know, we, we have a lot of folks coming to see us that came to our shows back when they were in college in the 80s and 90s, and now they're empty nesters and they're retired and they're coming back to see us. And they're reliving their glory days, and uh, we're we we still play like we're teenagers. We we still have the spirit. We really dig playing, and we put our all into what we do. So they appreciate that, and they're they're coming back and just having the best time, and bringing their kids and their grandkids. Sometimes it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, and I'm very and grateful for that. I mean, the eighties of any of any decade, I think, has like more sort of timestamps on it than just about mm. anything, except maybe some of the phase shifting in '67. But otherwise, like you know, like there are certain like 1984, mid '80s records that just sound a certain way, and I don't feel like that's true of the Smithereens. If you put out one of those first three albums 
now you would think, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty contemporary. Well, I'm glad you said that. You know, honestly, we we always said to our producers, our engineers, we, we don't want to uh, you know, go in lockstep with the flavor of, of that year or that month or that era. We just wanted to make records that uh, we could live with and that made us happy. And uh, so I'm glad that that you said that because that that was always our goal. That was our aim was to make records that we thought were, you know, timeless for lack of better description. I, I don't need to sound, uh, you know, high hatted about it, but we really did want to make records that didn't sound dated. I guess we succeeded, you know, and I got to say this in all honesty and with, without uh, any hint of braggadocio, but uh I really do think that we made some classic sides. I think, if, if anything, Blood and Roses and Beyond the Wall of Sleep. And I'm not saying, I'm not bragging. I just really feel, just as a fan, too, or a music fan, we we did craft at least two classics, maybe more. But those, Wall of Sleep and Blood and Roses, I think are classics. When I hear them, they, they contain the essence of what I love about rock and roll records you know i feel that we, we did something pure and meaningful uh just by being ourselves when we cut those you know we just went in we cut those five those five tracks that i mentioned we recorded those in one night very quickly with just an engineer and no producer and uh we just played our from our hearts and we, we created something that i think uh i i think that's why they connected with people because we weren't trying to be something we weren't or trying any trappings or injecting any anything that was uh, of that particular era so you know i, I i'm proud of that uh, that i can say that and I, I really do believe that yeah well the fact that almost almost 40 years which is crazy uh, is gonna is the 40th anniversary of especially for you is gonna be in what three years, and uh, mm. yeah, those songs still sound great. So that's Thank that's you. the that's the litmus test. You know, I still listen to them. For Blood and Roses, did Mike come up with the the baseline after Pat presented it, or was that part of the song that Pat presented in the first place with that bass intro? Pat, Pat came up with that baseline. That was Pat's. Uh, you know, Mike certainly put his own spin on it. Matter of fact, a little side story. The night we recorded that at the record plant, it was Good Friday of 1985. And we were already used to working at the bigger rooms on the main floor at the record plant, Studio A and Studio B. Studio A is where I believe John Lennon recorded Happy Christmas, War is Over. And he worked at the record plant. He did Walls and Bridges there, too, as well. But um, we had friends there. They snuck us in after hours. They gave us good rates. Because we were just paying from gig money and blood money, we didn't we didn't have budgets, you know. So we were scheduled for that Good Friday to record in one of the big rooms on the ground floor, and then they got a better paying session booked, and they called us. Look, we're going to have to kick you upstairs to the tenth floor where there was a much smaller room, and we said, "Oh man, should we just bag it for tonight and uh, come back another time when we can get to the big room?" So we just bit the bullet and we went in and we cut those five tracks and glad we did. But Mike brought his bass amp and it blew up. So we couldn't use his bass amp for that session. So we had to plug directly into the board. That's what created that sound of the bass was. Uh, really? 
the fact that we didn't use an amp. <laughs> or maybe we used a, a combination of the studio amp and going direct. I think that's what it was. Was being in that smaller room, did that help the sound of it? I think it gave us a more contained sound. We cut those tracks live as a band, too. I think if you listen to some of the other tracks on Especially For You, they do have a bigger sound, like um, I Don't Want to Lose You and uh, Time and Time Again, Strange When We Meet. And the five tracks that we did in the other room do have a different sound. And I quite like the sound that we did get on that uh, initial session. Uh, so I'm glad we we stuck with it and we did go in that night. It's uh, It was a very important night for the Smithereens, very fortuitous. Absolutely. So the name, the Smithereens, who named it? And was that specifically like thinking, oh, let's do a Yosemite Sam reference? Well, it probably came from watching those Warner Brothers cartoons and Yosemite Sam saying it. But it was also a word that you would hear in old movies and old TV shows and in pop culture. And in fact, I used to keep um, a pocket notebook, a little spiral pocket notebook with me at all times. And I collected, uh, when I came up with ideas for band names, I would write them down. And I had a couple hundred of them. I still do that. I still <laughs> do that do too, all the time. <laughs> so I had the name on a list of, of a bunch of different suggested, suggested names. But that one stuck out. It sounded like it should have been a 60s band name, but apparently it wasn't. There was, however, and probably still is, the Glee Club at Smith College in New England used the name The Smithereens. And uh, I think they still might make records using that name. They've been around since, I don't know, the 40s or 50s. Smith College, Smithereens. But uh, yeah, it was my suggestion, and uh, it really it worked, you know? <laughs> That's it for episode 105 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Dennis Dyken for his excellent playing on and storytelling about those Smithereens records and much more. He is featured on the recently released album, Shine On, a tribute to Pete Ham. He performs the Badfinger song, Yes, Dennis. You can buy Smithereens music and merch at officialsmithereens.com and also find info about upcoming tour dates. The Smithereens with Marshall Crenshaw are playing October 21st at the Wall Street Theater in Norwalk, Connecticut, and November 17th at City Winery, Boston. The Smithereens with Robin Wilson play November 24th at the Stone Pony in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and January 24th at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, for whom too much passion is not enough. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter and Instagram at Carol Popcast. You could follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit carolpop.com where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. 